So, about, gosh, it's getting to be uh, 25, 26 years ago, uh, I was going through a period in my life, and I used to live practically up at Sarah Retreat. And that's a uh, retreat run by the Franciscans up in Malibu Canyon. Some of you program people know it because uh, there's a lot of retreats going on up there as well. And uh, I would go up there. I'd sometimes just book a room. And, and just hang about. If I was there on a weekend and there was a men's retreat going on, I'd lurk and just be part, pretend that I was part of the group and, and listen. And I befriended two of the priests there. And one of them, after he said something pretty uh, scripturally outrageous in one of the uh, convocations, uh, I darted over to his office afterwards and went in there with my Bible, loaded for bear and ready to go, right? And as soon as I started talking, I don't think I got three words out of my mouth, and he put his big hand up in the universal stop sign. And he said, wait, he goes, all I can tell you is what I become convinced of. You go become convinced of what you're convinced of. And, of course, at the time, you know, with my legal doctrinal mind at the time, I thought that was a huge cop-out. And now, all these years later, I realize it's the only thing that any one of us can say to another when it comes to our faith. Maybe mathematics is a little different, but when it comes to our faith, what are you convinced of? How did you become convinced of what you're convinced of? Is it your conviction, or did you try to import it from someplace else? See, these are the, 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 the central questions, and I'd never heard anything like that before. When he told me, go become convinced of what you're convinced of, it took me a while. I did it, but it took me a while because I had to be convinced that I had permission to go become convinced of what I was convinced of because I was taught the church had all of that authority. And all I was supposed to do was take what they gave me and run with it. But here was someone telling me, not only that, you know, dressed up like Yoda with the robe and the whole thing, and he's telling me, go become convinced of what you're convinced of. It was revolutionary. You know, it was revolutionary in my life. And it didn't work any of the ways that I thought it was going to work. I thought that I had to study harder. I thought that I had to get more factoids about theology and and church and history and all these things in order to be able to become convinced of what I was convinced of and to say what he said with the conviction that he said in that group that caused such a stir. It took me a long time to realize that conviction that he's talking about, the kind of conviction that he was talking about, is a conviction of the heart, not of the head. And it operates in a very different way. It wasn't about gathering more stuff that I could prove. You know? Because if you think about it, you can prove anything from Scripture, right? Haven't you run across that phenomenon now where people of all different opinions have their scriptural proofs and they prove it absolutely without a doubt? Just ask them. And yet the guy across the hall has another proof. So if you can really prove anything from Scripture, then the truth of the matter is you can't prove anything from Scripture. Because the proof of Scripture is not an intellectual matter. The proof of Scripture is in the effect of a changed life. When a life turns and looks more and more like Christ, when a life turns and looks more and more like Jesus, when a life turns and the relationships heal, and you see the energy and the life coming back into a person, that's the proof. That's how we can be convinced of something as surely as Emery Tang was convinced of what he told me. So what you do is you have to just start living as if something were true, something that you're not totally convinced of, 
But you start with enough trust to begin to live as if that thing were true, and you end up convincing your heart. That's the way that this works. It was a very different process than what I set out to do with my head. And this is the way of the mystic. We've been talking about mystics here for the last few weeks. This is the way of the contemplative. This is the way of the mystic. It's not to go out and do your own thing and come up with anything that you pull out of the air. It's a balance between head and heart. It's a balance between the knowledge that we can glean from Scripture and the experience of who God really is. Because we need the knowledge that we get from Scripture to ground us, right? But we need the experience of spirit one-on-one to be able to take flight. And we need both. We need grounding and we need flight. That just reminded me of Casey Kasem. What was his line all the time? Keep your feet on the ground and reach for the stars. Wasn't that it? I like that. That's really what a mystic is doing. Keeping their feet on the ground with the knowledge of Scripture that gives us the guardrails, that gives us the place where we're really heading into outright error. Things that are run contrary to everything that Jesus was about. But with the individual first person experience, nonverbal, non rational connection that allows us to know something absolutely to our core. And we've been studying the mystics. And we've been focusing, as we've been studying last two Wednesdays on the mystics, we've been focusing on those circumstances, those connections or conditions in their lives, those events in their lives that turn them toward the the, the solid search for God that ended up in their life journey. I'm fascinated by that. What were the starting points? What were the bits and pieces that moved someone along a trajectory that was so radical in some cases? Baron, the, the first Wednesday, took Brother Lawrence and we talked about Brother Lawrence in here a few, to- a few times before. And Brother Lawrence was uh, in a war, the Thirty Years' War. He was wounded badly, and he had an experience because of his experience in war, because of the illness, and because of his situation in life as a, as a poor person. He, he, something happened within him. Frank, at the end of our session, is going to be taking Francis of Assisi. Similar story. Born from a wealthy family, but went to war and was imprisoned and then had an illness that was life-transforming. Last week, Nina took Julian of Norwich. And Julian was born five years, six years before the first of the great Black Death plagues hit Europe. She's six years old. She is watching the decimation of everything around her from six to ten. It was four long years that the Black Death ravaged Europe, in which some estimates say as high as 60% of the European population was killed. People died within three to seven days of this Black Death in horrible ways, with pustules and all these horrible things happening. They were dying so fast in the city of Norwich, was the second largest city in, in England at the time, that they couldn't bury them fast enough. They ended up just stacked in carts or lying where they fell in the streets. And when they did bury them, they were just in big pits, as, as they could do. Estimates say that of the 25 or so thousand people that lived in Norwich at the time, maybe 6,000 survived. Could you imagine having 75% of your town decimated? Two out of every three merchant shops were closed. Everybody was dead. The town took 300 years to recover before it was up to where it was before the plague. And here's a six-year-old wandering through the streets, 
Maybe she lost her family. We know so little about Julian. We don't know what happened. We do know at about age 30, she became deathly ill. It could have been another plague outbreak because the plague outbreaks happened for 300 years. They didn't end until the 1600s. Maybe she was married by that time. Maybe she lost her family. Nobody knows. But some some combination of all of those traumatic events in her life and then this illness where she nearly died caused her to have these visions, these revelations, as she called them, 16 of them. Next Tuesday or Wednesday, I'm going to be talking about Thomas Merton. Very different, 20th century, not 14th century or 17th century, 20th century. But when you look at Thomas Merton's life, you see that he was barely raised by his parents, moving from country to country, bouncing between Europe and the United States. His mother died when he was six. His father, father died when he was 16. Really rattled him. He was, he was raised by a guardian from that point on. Grandparents died thereafter. He was uh, prone to depression. And at a, per, a certain point where he was going to Cambridge in England, he kind of lost his way completely. Went into a deep depression, isolation, a lot of drinking and, and just wild living. And when he came out of that, the guilt set in. All of these circumstances that move these people into a crisis point that results in a really intense search for God. Merton really resonated with me when I was reading him for the first time some 20 years ago because I was in so much of the same place I felt, much less dramatically, much less colorfully in Huntington Beach instead of France and England and all the places he was at. But still, the depression, you know, the sense of isolation, dissociation, the, the, the guilt, and, and all the other things that were going on, knowing I wasn't where I was supposed to be. Each one of us, if we're really going to take this journey... We'll have a similar story. Something is going on. The wounds and the trauma, the addictions, the sins, if you will, are what create this meaning, this crisis of meaning, this crisis of purpose. But here's the catch. All of those wounds and traumas and addictions and sins that are going to be the motivators to embark on a really intense and sincere journey for truth and for God can also be the main hindrances at the same time, to be able to get to that truth that seems like life itself. Because you spend enough of your life in that kind of trauma, you spend yourself, your, enough of your life in that kind of addiction or depression or emotional heartbreak, you become identified with that. You think that's who you are. And the guilt and everything covers over who you are, and it is almost impossible just to let that go. And so that identification with unworthiness, that identification with not being good enough, can shunt a, a journey for truth off into a lifetime of penance for the sins of your past. You see what I'm saying? Instead of a journey for truth, it's trying to prove your worthiness now. It is trying to do penance for what you feel that you did wrong in the past. And as soon as you get off in one of those areas, either trying to prove your worthiness or doing penance for your guilt, you are shelved off from ever being able to be fully present here and now and see what is really right in front of you the entire time. It's amazing how this works psychologically, but I know something about this, all right? It was 10 long years before I feel that I was able to break through. But those who do break through 
And these are the mystics and the contemplatives that we're studying. Those who break through from all of that identification with who they were and the negative parts of their lives. Break through to a conviction of the heart that is very similar. They have similar themes that they're talking about, even though there's endless variety at the same time. It's interesting to me how in just those three mystics that we have studied so far, or we're, we're going to study Thomas Merton, each one of them broke through to an absolute practice and intimate knowledge of presence. For them, it was always about presence. But in Lawrence's case, it was presence in action. He was the cook of his community, and he found God amid, amid the pots and the pans and the smoke and the dirt and the oil and on the grease and all of that sort of thing. It was presence in action. But for Thomas Merton, it was presence in silence. He was the one who went to the cloister. He was the one who spent 20 years trying to get dispensation to be able to live in a hermitage instead of in the community because he craved the silence. And for Julian, it was presence in compassion. She found the connection with her God at an emotional level. She called her God mother as well as father. And she broke through into an emotional place with God. And that's where I want to dig in a little bit this morning with some of the things that Julian has written in those 16 revelations. Because this is where we need to go if we're going to start to understand how God sees us, which is something that took me so long. I want to tell you what I'm convinced of. And so we're going to have to take a little bit of a circuitous route here. In your bulletins, I I gave you the first couple paragraphs of chapter 27, which is the 13th revelation of of Julian. And I just want to read a little bit of this. Just just read along, and when you run out of words, I'll keep reading. Just, Just hear what she's saying here. This is during her illness. She's having these revelations She's seeing Jesus in all different sorts of ways through his passion and through his death. And then the Lord brought to my mind the longing that I had for him before. And I saw that nothing hindered me but sin. And I thought, if sin had never been, we should all have been clean and like our Lord as he made us. And so in my folly before this time, I often wondered why, by the great foreseen wisdom of God, the beginning of sin was not stopped. For then I thought all should have been well. But Jesus, who in this vision informed me of all that is needful, answered by this word and said, Sin is behovely. I love that word, archaic word. Sin is behovely. It means useful or necessary. Sin is useful. Sin is necessary. It is necessary that we have sin, he's saying. But all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. In this naked word, sin, our Lord brought to my mind generally all that is not good and the shameful spite that he bore for us in this life and his dying and all the pains and passion of his creatures with all the pains that ever were or ever shall be. All this was shown in a touch and quickly passed over into comfort for our good Lord would not have the soul afraid of this terrible sight. I could see no sin. For I believe it has no manner of substance, nor no actual being, nor could it be known at all but by the pain that it causes. And thus pain, it is something. 
for it purges us and makes us know ourselves and to ask for mercy and for the tender love that our good Lord has to all that shall be saved. He comforts readily and sweetly, signifying this. It is truth that sin is the cause of all this pain, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. These words were said full tenderly, showing no manner of blame to me, nor to any that shall be saved. Then it seemed that then it seemed a great unkindness for me to blame or wonder on God for my sin, since he does not blame me for my sin. And in these words I saw a marvelous high mystery hidden in God, which mystery he shall openly make known to us in heaven, and in which knowing we shall truly see the reason why he allowed sin to come, in which sight we shall be endlessly joyful in our Lord God. Think about what she's saying right there. Thomas Merton commenting on this, he wrote, This is for her, for Julian, the heart of her theology. Not solving the contradiction, but remaining in the midst of it, but in peace. Knowing that it is fully solved, that the solution, though, is in secret, in God, and will never be guessed until it's revealed. And this is what she's doing. She has become convinced that the mystery is solved. She knows that sin is useful, and yet she's not exactly sure how. But she is making some points here at the same time, some theological points. Did you know that Julian was the first known woman to have written a book in the English language? The first real theologian of Christianity, a woman? I mean, it's amazing what she accomplished. And so she is making some theological points here. You know. So what is the first one? First thing that she's saying first of all, is that not everyone is going to be saved. You know, when you start talking about God's love to this extent, when you start talking about the fact that sin has no substance, it starts to sound like ollie ollie in free, and there's, there's really no consequences, there's no accountability. That's not what she's saying. She says, for those who shall be saved, not that God's love changes for anybody, but that it is still our choice to pick up the free gift. This is a point that she's making. The second one is, but in God's love, All will be well. Everything is going to be okay. Why is that? Because the sin we fear, the sin that we guilt over, actually has no substance other than the pain that it causes. When the pain is gone, when you have healed from the pain, when the others in your sphere of influence have healed from their pain, there's nothing left but love. This is what she's trying to get across. And all will be well. We hang on to the guilt. We hang on to the memory of the things that we've done. We hang on to the ruptured relationships of the past and won't let them flow into something that is different now. We do that. But she's saying that Jesus does not. Father does not. Now she's just talking here. Delirious. Out of a sick bed, right? Is there any scriptural support from this? I think so. Take a look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Here's Paul. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself 
not counting the trespasses against them, not counting the trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the world of reconciliation. Paul is basically saying the same thing here. Different words, but the same idea. Once we turn and face God, once we allow ourselves to move out of victimhood, out of the pain, out of the resentment, out of the bitterness, or whatever we've created through our sinful behavior, which, remember, sin is separation. Any behavior that leads to separation is sinful. That's what we're talking about here. Not just unlawful. Leading to separation is the definition from the Hebrew point of view. Once we repent, once we turn from that and face God again, we are absolutely new. We are now in Christ. We are brand new, reconciled. And that sin is no more to be seen. But Julian is going further. But wait, there's more, right? Even though sin is without substance, sin is useful and necessary. What? Why would that be? It's one thing to say that it's without substance, it's only the pain, but now she's saying it's actually useful. And Jesus told her this because the pain it causes, the pain that sinful behavior causes is real. And pain changes us. Pain is what changes us, right? Turmoil is what changes us. Not the good times. For better or worse, right? There was an article that I came across and he had an interesting take. He says, there's an old saying... God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Have you heard that one before? I love that. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Right? You don't have to get yourself clean and sort yourself out, you know, for God's benefit, really. God needs you to get clean. Or, and here's the catch, to make him love you more. God already loves you as much as can be possible. So he doesn't need our good works for that. God doesn't need your good works to accomplish his will. His will is going to happen, right? But we certainly need each other's help. But it's not just that God doesn't need our good works. He doesn't need our bad ones either. In other words, God doesn't need to be constantly reminded of our need for him or our guilt or contrition in order to forgive us. He already has. God doesn't need our sins But we do. Sin is useful in that it tells us the truth about who we are, who we are, and who God is. Sin reminds us of who we are and who God is. Now, how does it do that? Because it's the pain. It's always the pain. It's always the wounding that strips life to its essentials, strips away all the facade, helps us to see exactly what's going on without all of the projections and all of the illusions that we place, you know, as anesthetic in our lives. So if that gets stripped away, then who are we? Who are we that is being revealed? We're being revealed as imperfect people, aren't we? What Scripture calls bisha in Aramaic. Taba and Bisha, good and evil, means literally ripe and unripe. We're being revealed as imperfect, as unripe, as not ready for prime time yet. Immature. Not able to run to manufactured specifications yet as a human being. However you want to take a look at that. That we are prone to certain failures to communicate. What we have here is a failure to communicate. 
Okay, a few, a few more if you got that one. All right. But we have years of failure to communicate, to coordinate, to connect. These are the things that are being revealed to us. You know, in, in AA, when we started 11 years ago trying to meld the, the, the program and the faith community, man, we got a lot of letters to the Chancery Office about the fact that AAers always identify themselves as alcoholics. Hi, I'm Dave, and I'm an alcoholic. After 20 years, hi, I'm Dave, I'm an alcoholic. They thought that was horrible because we're a new creature in Christ, so we just read from Paul, right? So why do you keep identifying as what you were instead of who you are? And we will try to explain to them, you know. It's not that we are still identifying with that. To continue to identify is to remind ourselves of what we're prone to. That if we don't stay on this particular track, we're going to end up right back the place that we came from. And we know what that is like. It's a continual reminder for us what is going on in our lives. I had a a monk who taught me in high school. And one of his favorite lines that I still remember, what, 45 years later, 40 years later, whatever it is. He said, any man or woman is capable of the utmost folly at any given moment. And to forget that fact is to put yourself on a path where you're going to fall. We identify, we remember our sin, quote-unquote. We remember our frailties. We remember our proclivities for the things that have been dysfunctional in our lives so that we don't repeat them again. It's a remembering of all of that, that utmost folly. Not that we're identifying with the folly anymore. Not that we are still that person anymore. We are changed, and we want to remain so. That's the whole point. It's a reminder of the sin-revealed weakness in us. And that is useful in guiding our choices going forward. Well, if that's the case, shouldn't we just send a whole bunch more and get a lot more instruction? Paul thought that it was important to address that. Take a look at, at Romans 6, starting at verse 1. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've let the country... Wait, wait. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? This is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. That's from the message, and real appropriate for today, because we're going to be doing that in just a little while. So there's a balance here. There's a balance, of course. We don't go looking for sinful behavior. We don't have to do that. It's going to find us. But when we do find the sinful behavior, when we find ourselves in those compromising positions again, we can take courage. We can, we can have some comfort in knowing that as soon as we are moving in a different direction and the pain is healed, it's just as if it never happened in God's eyes. And more than that, we have learned something that will take us in a new direction. But Julian is making another point that's even more important. That sin shows us who God is. Sin shows us who we are. 
but also shows us who God is. Sin is behovely. Sin is useful and necessary because it runs us right smack into the true nature of God like nothing else in life will do. If we continue on a path as if these things are true, we will realize that we cannot be good enough under the law for God. It's not going to happen. We can't do it under our own steam. But as we continue on, we'll realize it doesn't matter. That is not the standard by which God looks at us. We're not supposed to be perfect. Did you ever figure that out? We look at little babies and we think, oh, so innocent, so perfect. You know, and then look at this teenager. Oh, my gosh. You know. We're not supposed to stay innocent little babies. We're supposed to become obnoxious teenagers. We're supposed to become dysfunctional adults. We're supposed to go off the rails and, and do all the things that we do. We're supposed to get scarred and bloodied and wrinkled and pruny. All of those things are supposed to happen in life. That's what life is all about. As long as the sum total of all of that stuff brings us to the place where we can stand present to each other and to our God. We have fulfilled our purpose here. It's not going to be pretty. It's not supposed to be. But it gets beautiful in the end, in the middle, every moment that we connect. This is what is trying to be connected with here. We're, never, we're not supposed to be perfect, but we're supposed to be trusting. There should come a time when we can just lean in and relax and know that we know become convinced of what we're convinced of, that all will be well, all will be well, all manner of thing will be well. Even if we don't see the evidence for it, all will be well. When we finally risk trusting, risk giving away something that's really important to us, risk getting hurt again in another relationship, we're going to keep learning something about God. And I want to read a second little bit from Julian because she takes it to the next level. And there's a little first paragraph is there in your bulletins if you want to follow along. This is from chapter 49. This is the 16th revelation. For this was a high marvel to the soul, which was continually shown in all the revelations and was with great diligence seen that our Lord God concerning himself cannot forgive. Let me read that again. She's saying, our Lord cannot forgive, for he cannot be angry. Ah, It's impossible. For this was shown, that our life is all grounded and rooted in love. And without love, we cannot live. And therefore, to the soul that with his special grace sees so far into the high, marvelous goodness of God and sees that we are endlessly one, endlessly united with him in love, it is most impossible that God should be angry. For anger and friendship are two contraries. For he who wastes, he, God, who wastes and destroys our anger and makes us meek and mild, it must follow that he himself be ever one in love, meek and mild, which is contrary to anger. Okay, so I know what you're thinking. Of course God is angry. Just read the Old Testament, right? You know, this is one of those places where i got to tell you, you know, all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. All Julian can tell you is what she's convinced of. 
Of course, the Bible reads that way. Now, we can get into a long dissertation, which is going to be far outside the scope of this talk this morning, of how that can be reconciled in terms of looking at the Bible in a hermeneutic sort of way. But ultimately, you're going to become convinced of what you're convinced of. Julian is convinced that God cannot be angry because it's contrary to his nature. Therefore, he doesn't have to forgive. I came to the same conclusion myself without even having read Julian. It's kind of amazing how this works. As I said, when we move down this path together, when we move down this path separately, even, we end up at the same place if our search is sincere. And I find so many times that I think I've thought an original thought, and now I realize I just haven't read enough. Because I'll read it here and I'll read it there. And instead of feeling like, you know, they plagiarized and they stole my thunder, it's this comfort of knowing that more and more people following our 2,000-year Christian tradition are ending up in the same place, understanding the same things. She continues, "For For I full surely... Let me start again. For I saw full surely that where our Lord appears, peace is taken and anger hath no place. For I saw no manner of anger in God, neither for short time or for long. For in truth, as to my sight, if God be angry for an instant, we should never have life nor place nor being. For as truly as we have our being from the endless might of God and from the endless wisdom and from the endless goodness, so surely we have our keeping in the endless might of God, in the endless wisdom and the endless goodness. For though we feel in ourselves, as the frail wretches we see ourselves as, debates and strifes internally, we are in all ways enclosed in the mildness of God and in his meekness, in his benign nature and his graciousness. For I saw full surely that all our endless friendships, our place, our life, our being is in God. Now listen how I put it in my book, The Fifth Way. For God, as the perfection of love and unity, every relationship with him is also perfect. How could it be otherwise? That we experience our relation with our relationship with him as something less than perfect, less than forgiven, is not punishment, but a choice. Our choice alone, as we are the only ones with a choice to make. God has already made his. In terms of how we typically understand forgiveness as an action or a legal decision, God doesn't forgive anyone, ever. There is no need. We are always already forgiven, and there is nothing we can do to alter that fact. Forgiveness isn't something God does. It's something he is. All we can do is accept it or not, realize it or not, come in out of the rain or not. But we have to be ready to accept forgiveness for it to appear. We have to be ready to accept freedom, which is the same thing. And most of us are not. God, love, freedom, deliverance, salvation, and forgiveness are always and forever available and free. We need to be ready to accept that reality of life or it will never become real in our lives. We're as forgiven as we want to be. Now, I'm no Julian. I'm not trying to go there. But I think if that if we're really searching, sincerely, authentically searching, God brings us to the same place. It's the place of himself. It's the place of truth. Truth is a person. 
Jesus told us that. We're going to come to the person who is the truth if we are sincerely searching. And we'll color it differently through who we are, and we'll express it differently, but it'll be the same truth. And when you walk down that road a ways and stop pretending and defending, keeping all those things in place, accept who you have been, let that reality, that acceptance, reveal to you all of that, and then realize that it doesn't matter to God. And it really doesn't matter to anyone who really loves you. Do you know that? They don't care who you were. They care who you are. God sees us always and only as we are right now. As if for the first time. God sees us as if for the first time every time. You've ever thought about that that way? It's like he's taking a continuous snapshot of us. It's just a snapshot. We're the ones that have all this backstory and all this other information and all our anxieties about this and that. God is just accepting who stands in front of him right now. Don't we do the same thing when we meet someone for the first time? You run across and meet a homeless person. To you, they've always been homeless, right? That's all you know of them. They're homeless. You don't know if that person has been a CEO of a corporation before, a family man with kids and grandkids. You have no way of knowing what the past life was like. You just see the homeless person. Or maybe you meet someone who's really attractive. You don't know if they were a homely, overweight kid before. You don't know if they've been an addict before. You don't know anything about them. You don't know of anything that they've done. You just take the snapshot right here and right now. We are the ones who have all this other information that we bring to the table, but God is just seeing us as if for the first time. This is what I believe that Julian is trying to get across to us. As we remember and hold down to, on to our identification from the past, we forget that God is presence itself. God is present. God can only connect with us this moment, right here, right now. God is everything that exists, but everything that exists is right here and right now. And when we enter into the present moment, we're literally entering into God. And it all exists right here. All that other stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't even exist. This is what I've become convinced of. And I can still close my eyes and see that night, some 15 years ago, 10 years into my 25-year journey here now, all of that time trying to get to the point where I felt I had the permission to become convinced of what I was convinced enough to be able to sit there that night all alone, still trying to justify myself, still trying to think through, am I good enough? And maybe I am, and maybe this, and maybe that. And then everything just hushed. It was the closest to a mystical experiment experience that this OCD brain can have, I think. You know, everything just went quiet. And everything was lifted off of me at that moment. And it's as if the words were appearing. I didn't hear a voice, but the words were there. You know, I can't love you anymore. I can't love you any less. That was it. It wasn't the words so much. It was the conviction. It was the feeling. It was the knowing. It was the 10 years of letting everything slowly fill up like that dirt in the well analogy that we use sometimes until it hit someplace and just 
popped open. And I was freed from all that stuff. Not instantly, but more and more and more. Whereas there was so little progress that I could track, there's been progress now. I am not the same person that I was before. And God sees me that way. This is what I'm convinced of. I can't prove it to you, but I know that it's true. I know that it's true for me. And I know that it's true for you simply because there have been so many people throughout our tradition that have come to the same conclusion more and more and more. And when you have felt it, when you've connected with it yourself, you see it coming out of the pores of scripture and writings and everything else just in in conversation. It's amazing how it works. It's kind of like when you want to buy a Ford Focus, you only see Ford Focuses all over the freeway. It's kind of like once you have this this. This notion of how God sees us and loves us. You see it everywhere. It's amazing how that works. I wanted to finish by reading... Okay, I'm I'm close here. There was this question and answer on a Dominican website that, that just really hit me because of the... I don't know, just the, the, the plaintive quality of the, of the woman who's questioning... She says, I want to ask you a tough question. Does God forgive everything? I was 14 years married when I left my husband. I was unhappy from the third year and committed adultery on and off for the next 11 years. There were periods of faithfulness and happiness, and two children resulted. I can accept 51% of the blame, but it takes two to tango, as they say. I wasn't a practicing Christian at the time, but I am now, completely. I have turned my life over to God. Do I serve out the rest of my life in penance? Will I be forgiven for what I have done? How many of you felt that way? I know I have. Will I ever be forgiven? Can I ever do enough? Can I ever be good enough? Listen to this reply. I'm absolutely certain that you have God's forgiveness. Period. There is no limit to God's mercy. Reading the parable of the prodigal son should dispel any doubts you might still have. Our sinful actions have damaging consequences, of course, and we have to try to undo these or learn to live with them. But nothing can turn off God's forgiveness, just as nothing can stop the sun from shining. Clouds don't stop the sun from shining. They just hide it from our eyes. To assure you that this is not a modern, lax, quote-unquote, pleasing view, let me quote you a passage from Meister Eckhart, a 14th century German mystic. When you stand right above sin and turn completely away from it, then our faithful God acts as if you had never fallen into sin and will not let you suffer for a moment for all your sins. Even if they were as many as all the people have ever committed, God will never punish you, but would be as familiar to you as any other creature. Provided he finds you now ready, he pays no regard to what you were before. God is a God of the present As he finds you, so he takes and receives you. As he finds you, so he takes and receives you. Not as what you were, but as what you are now. Another 14th century mystic, an English woman, Julian of Norwich, spoke of God addressing loving words to us after we have turned from sin. She said, Our courteous Lord shows himself to the soul, happily and with the gladdest countenance, welcoming it as a friend, as if it had been in pain and in prison, saying, My darling, 
my darling. I am glad that you have come to me in all your woe. I have always been with you, and now you see me loving, and we are made one in bliss. Sometimes in the past, people played down God's forgiveness because I suppose they thought we would all go to pot if we believed God was so forgiving. At the bottom of it, as is so often the case, is the compulsion to control people's lives. Now, you don't have to spend the rest of your life doing penance. I've heard it said that while it is easy to believe that God forgives you, it's not so easy to forgive yourself. I don't think this is correct. It's not possible to forgive yourself any more than it is possible to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. Forgiveness is something received, not something generated by oneself. It takes a bit of humility to accept that our debt is written off. It is because we haven't gone fully into that humility that we hold back. That holding back is not a reluctance to forgive oneself, but a reluctance to accept God's forgiveness. No, you don't have to spend the rest of your life doing penance, but you can spend the rest of your life praising God's unconditional love and enjoying it. This is what I'm convinced of. And so are many, so many others. All through the length and breadth of Christianity. We can't prove it logically, but we've proven it to ourselves experientially. And so the charge to you is to take these logs that we've presented here this morning, put them on your fire, and watch them burn. And then, if one of them looks like maybe it's real enough, true enough, take it and use it in the next choice you make, in the next relationship you live, and see if it takes you where you really want to go. See if it doesn't show you that you are enough right now, that God's snapshot of you right now is pleasing to Him. If you just want to be pleasing to Him, that's it. The bar is so low for us that it's almost incomprehensible. But to get to the bar takes everything that is in us to let go of everything we think we know and just show up and trust that we'll have that embrace and we're going to have that welcome party and that God is rejoicing. Ah, Let's pray. Amen, indeed. Ah, Father... when I think about all the years that I banged my head against your door and was already open. Thank you, Lord. All we can do is present our gratitude again. But help us to grant ourselves the permission to think outside the box, to color outside the lines, to use someone with the audacity of a Julian to imagine your relationship with us as something more beautiful than we even can hope for. And then to live our lives as if that were true and find out if it is. That's all we can do, Lord. You know that. You've shown us this. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your provision and your constant attention. 
Help us to see it in our everyday lives and to know that we know that we know that it's real and that we're convinced. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.